Hello, and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. I'm your host, Chris Peterson. We're recording this in late August and hope everyone is staying safe and keeping well. I'm really pleased to be joined on today's program by my colleagues, Ben Lynch, Director and Energy Systems Lead, and Hugh Blackwell, Principal Engineer, both out of the UK, when today we'll be digging into the built environment, the key trends, challenges, and opportunities going forward. Ben and Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Nice to speak to you. It's uh, afternoon here, but it's probably early morning for you. It is, but it's a beautiful day and it's great to have the two of you joining us. So really appreciate it. Maybe to get us started, could you just give us a general overview of what's happening in the built environment and both how did we get here and maybe a little bit of kind of where we're at in the process as you see it? Okay, maybe I could start on that. So from my sort of experience of the last couple of years, I think there's been quite a significant change in the built environment in a number of spaces. One is that the built environment is having to think about sustainability in a more holistic way. So no longer can we just look for outcomes based around operational carbon. We now have to give consideration to things like life cycle carbon, um, which of course includes embodied carbon and end of life cycle carbon. But also there's increasing demand on delivering net positive biodiversity, improved air quality, better working environments um, that promote health and well-being, improved water performance of buildings. So all of these things are sort of coming together to create more complex but interesting opportunities for architects and engineers to develop new buildings and also to work on um, remodeling buildings to improve their performance. Yeah, I would just add to Ben's point as well. I mean, on top of the uh, the items he's described, there's also uh, been a realization amongst some organizations and clients that even where they have procured or adopted buildings which were sold or perhaps designed for them to be uh, low carbon, you know, in, in the kind of run up to this point in time, where they are in occupation, they're discovering that they're not actually performing as um, perhaps designed or as perhaps they were um, described. And there is a certain amount of forensic activity going on with certain clients into understanding why that is the case uh, and where those problems lie and how they may be rectified because there's kind of an awareness moving on beyond the, you know, the designing into the actual occupation of these spaces. You know, it's not just about getting the design and the construction right. It's then about running the buildings to achieve that performance and, and making sure you've got the things built in to allow you to achieve that performance when you're actually uh, in occupation. Yeah, fascinating to see how it's matured over the last decade or so. And, you know, when you think about that journey from such a sharp carbon focus in the past to this more holistic view, you know, what do you feel has driven that? What has kind of led to to that approach? In my view, I would say there's a sort of complex set of uh, external drivers, you know, some driven by regulation in the environments that we work in often in in London particularly there's been some quite sort of progressive moves on sustainability for the built environment um, particularly in new build however there's also an increasing understanding of the benefits of delivering sustainable buildings and clients are looking to 
makes that central to their development. So in the in the case of clients working with developers or occupying buildings, the sustainability of those buildings has become increasingly important, particularly in respect of carbon performance. So all of these things are starting to bring together the development and operation cycle, which are encouraging more sustainable outcomes in in the build process. In the actual occupation of existing buildings, I mean, the the retrofit challenge is still writ large. It's still difficult. There's still a lot of buildings which are difficult to treat. But there are sort of some interesting innovations that are coming forward, you know, in part driven by, you know, new regulatory markets that are creating a sort of stable framework for investment, but also some innovative financing options that are allowing whole building retrofit and whole portfolio retrofit, which are decarbonizing those estates, which is also very encouraging. Again, Chris, what I would augment Ben's point with is it can be very easy to become negative. People want to get to zero carbon 2050 or hit the Paris Agreement, and it uh, it requires such an enormous amount of effort. But um, when we do go back and look at the data, there has been big reductions in carbon emissions. You know, we can look at data for some of our local government entities. We can see that they have real reductions of you know 10, 20, 30 percent over the last 10 years. And those are things that need to be celebrated. But that also, in some senses, drives this next phase of the challenge in that a lot of the low-hanging fruit has potentially been taken in terms of you know, the easy wins in enhancing building performance standards and things of that nature. And we're now getting more and more into the sort of gnarly parts of did those measures actually do exactly what they were said they were going to do? And um, what are the harder measures that now need to be taken in order to you know, move us further and sort of incrementally along that road? Picking up on that, I mean, that that's an area that fascinates me because it seems like maybe we're starting to hit that marginal abatement cost curve inflection point of it being kind of cost benefit of insulating buildings, more energy efficient, et cetera to requiring this regulatory push to maybe change where the access is or whatever, however we want to look at that. But just that change of the business value, the value proposition of green buildings seems like it's evolved. Maybe could you unpack that a little bit in terms of how people are looking at this from a business perspective and a value perspective and the financial aspects of it? I'd, I'd just like to flag, this comes up quite often, but a key point of what you're making is is value. And it often comes up this sort of cost curve, but a very simple example for you. Um, there is no real energy efficiency, necessarily energy efficiency value in something like double glazing in, in the UK. You know, you're never going to justify the investment on the energy saves necessarily. And yet it is not commonly specified in buildings anymore to have single glazing because people won't accept that thermal comfort hit anymore they expect a modern building to be double glazed so i do think we have to be careful when we talk about the cost value curve as to where value lies because there are historic examples where people talk about value and all around energy efficiency and actually it's things like thermal comfort and quality of life where people are choosing to um, to make a, a value investment in not just on sort of fundamental um, um, finances but i'm sure ben has more he can say on that point I would say I would concur with those that are leading 
the market in this space and and have over you know at least the last decade been very progressive on carbon reduction but the evidence and the research would suggest that there is still a huge opportunity around energy efficiency and that a huge amount of our existing stock of which when we get to 2050 most sort of estimates would suggest around 70 to 80 percent of the stock built now will be in operation at that sort of point in time so given that we have a major challenge there that requires treatment and given that there is still significant economic opportunity in that area it does create something of a paradox as to why if there's this fantastic opportunity for energy efficiency in buildings that makes sense to the double bottom line why are those opportunities not being invested in not being delivered and a lot of the work that that i've been doing really investigates that and there's some consistent themes that come up one is um, ability to articulate the business case and make persuasive argument on the business case another is materiality so whether energy spend is material to uh, the operation of the, the business another will be on expertise around specification of systems and making sure that you get the outcomes that um, you're expected when you develop the business case and then obviously the big one is that's that's often talked about is is finance but the reality is that access to finance is not a problem there are plenty of funders out there both public and private who are willing to invest in energy efficiency projects you just have to bring the confidence and the diligence in the portfolio of projects in order to attract that finance so as I say, a lot of a lot of the work that that we do within the built environment focuses on where those easy wins are not actually being realised, and where there are sort of relatively simple and you know obvious investment opportunities that fit within standard ROIs or investment hurdle rates that can still be made within portfolios. But as Hugh mentioned, for those that are moving beyond that, there's a couple of big considerations that are now sort of starting to emerge and one of those is around enabling so investment in the built environment to enable a low carbon future so that the the big area for that being in electrification of heat and transport within the built environment and the infrastructure cost of that but also at the at the operational level giving considerations to how that transition is made and whether that's the right transition for your um, for your building stock or, or whether you should still be looking at alternative arrangements, your potential hydrogen economy and, and so on and, and how ready that is for, for a building stock. So as I say, there's a, f- a few things that are sort of in consideration there. When it comes to the new build side, of this you know certainly in 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 our experience in the uk many municipalities are starting to realize with their carbon budgets that they can no longer build or have construction that has a carbon impact so many of the buildings that we're now going to see from from here on forward in, in, particularly in in the the major cities of so london manchester Bristol, Birmingham, uh, etc. They will have a portfolio of net zero carbon buildings coming forward, and that will include for 
life cycle considerations and embodied carbon considerations. So, so legislation is driving that part of the market. But, you know, the, the major focus, if, if we are to achieve our carbon reduction targets and, and meet, you know, less than one and a half degrees global warming needs to be on the existing built environment right now and how we meet that challenge. Ben gave us a great example there. I'd like to use just to bracket my previous point in terms of the finance side of things. You know, typical LED lighting project often ticks many finance requirements straight out the box. And so there's often very clear business cases for that type of thing, as well as a clear carbon case. But a lot of the challenge is, you know, even though there's that very clear business case, we haven't got the whole of the UK market necessarily flocking to take up that opportunity wherever it's available for a range of reasons and so i think that's quite a nice bracket to the previous point that even when you do end up with something which has a very nice clear business case you still have other barriers and other hurdles to get over uh, to actually get the uh, the project on the ground and and the change enacted so maybe could you guys unpack some of those challenges that you see right i know you've hit on a few as we've talked through here but what are the big ones you see as those major hurdles to us being able to achieve the Paris Agreement targets and kind of the decisive decade objectives? I would say that we're still operating within a bit of a dichotomy in that any organization that's looking to achieve, you know, net zero carbon, carbon neutrality, etc., will need to have or make transformational change in their built environment portfolio and investment or, or, or standard ROIs investment are not going to be enough to reach those targets unless you're looking at a significant offsetting strategy, which in the end, those are going to get challenged more and more on the sort of credibility. So, you know, if you are genuinely looking to make that change, you have to sort of think more creatively about how those projects get delivered. But that said, given we are still operating within that paradigm, right now there are huge amounts of opportunity to deliver cost-effective savings and investment within typical investment hurdle rates. So the biggest challenge for me with that is, and what I see consistently, is that many of the businesses that we work with, when they develop business cases, they, they fail to include additional savings. So one would be consideration of energy price increases over time and, and how those get modeled. Another would be inflation. Another would be potential tax saving opportunities that, that aren't covered where there are sort of opportunities to save on taxes through investment in certain um, technology. Another would be that the additional savings associated with maintenance aren't included. So all of that fits into the, the standard ROI, but also there is a set of considerations around that that are poorly articulated. One of those being the opportunity to promote good health and well-being, um, the link into carbon reduction or sort of publicly communicated carbon reduction targets and, and how those two sort of fit together. So there are sort of multiple co-benefits to the investment that are often poorly articulated and if, you know, pulled together in a more coherent way would make a much more effective case for investment. 
I'll just pick up on another couple of things. I mean, number one is data. We do quite a lot of stuff with metering in the built environment for us. And often one of the key tools to assess where you are or where you're going is something like metered data. But it is very common that we find that people don't really understand metering or metering systems or don't have their system set up to understand where energy is flowing to throughout their organization and therefore the cost of that and that then can be kind of reinforced or hidden away with low fuel prices and they can sometimes disguise you know what a fundamentally not very well performing system and added into that i'd say just on a, a slightly larger scale some of the infrastructure stuff is risk profile and actually, a lot of the things, uh, some of the big infrastructure solutions that are being talked about, you know, we do a certain amount of work in industry heating and big low carbon cooling systems. The end result in terms of infrastructure is a very attractive investment proposition. It's um, utility scale type networks with a constant revenue stream, which people really want to have hold of because um, often that means then a constant return. And that's a very attractive commercial opportunity. But what people are very reluctant to do is take on for example, all the construction risk up front, um, unless they really clearly understand that. And and often these things are working in public realm and play areas where there is inherent risk. And whilst there's kind of this assumption that some private company will just come along and take all that risk for no guaranteed return in the long term, then it's unlikely we're going to be able to unpack some of those bigger infrastructure solutions. Whereas if we do start acknowledging the nature of some of that risk, and working with the types of solutions that already exist in utilities. You know, there are there are existing utility systems and there is ways that these risks are packaged up to make them work for those effectively those utility consumers, then that would also potentially start unlocking some of the bigger infrastructure solutions to uh, to some of these challenges. Yeah, well it'd be great if you could figure out how to connect those two dots. Cause yeah, I know that's such a fundamental kind of foundational piece of this that uh, will be fascinating to see how it evolves. Maybe a question before we move off from the challenges is how do you see kind of this response to COVID and the quarantine experience? I know here in North America, there's a lot of talk of people planning to continue to work remotely or downsizing of staff in offices, et cetera. Is that impacting what you're seeing in the built environment space and maybe some of this forecasting of value? Yeah, there's a very interesting statistic that came out probably about two months ago, looking at the City of London. So the City of London is effectively currently between 20 and 30% occupied compared to pre the COVID crisis. And what has been sort of suggested in, in many studies or outreaches from business to their employees is that most people now are sort of looking at you know new ways of working where they're actually quite comfortable to only be in the office a couple of days a week so the the study that i was looking at was saying that if that kind of culture became embedded it would take the city of london about 25 years of consistent growth to get back to the full population of offices prior to the lockdown so clearly if those sorts of behaviors become embedded there will be significant change to to the way that you know many of our sort of commercial centers operate and i think that 
you know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, in our own offices, returning to our own offices in this month and, and next month. And it will be quite interesting to see how those behaviours become embedded over the next six months and business attitudes to an increase in, in sort of working from home. And also, of course, the shift that that means, you know, from a, a built environment perspective in that, you, you know, you're you're shifting a lot of the energy consumption into the domestic space and away from the commercial space. So that will have an impl- implication for infrastructure as well and how how infrastructure responds to that change in demand. I think the other fascinating thing, Chris, from a UK perspective with COVID to keep an eye on in the medium to the long term has been potentially, you know, in terms of the investment markets in general, the risky assets that suffered sort of disproportionately as a result of the uh, sort of big economic swings were more in the fossil fuel camp. And actually, because of the way things are structured in the UK around certain renewable schemes, renewable regulation, the renewable infrastructure was the the more appealing, low-risk, constant return investment and suffered less as a result um, of some of those dramatic swings in comparison to, say, the sort of wild fluctuations you saw in the, the oil and gas markets. So it's going to be very interesting to see in, over the medium to longer term whether actually, again, there is uh, some linkages made into perhaps uh, these things becoming more of a stable uh, investment proposition than what was perhaps traditionally seen as the areas to go and get your continual dividends and your continual returns in. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see in this time of change how kind of sustainability is that consistent leveling, anchoring, you know, feature across many industries. So maybe maybe looking ahead, where do you see this going? And then maybe tying into that a little bit of like, what is the advice you would give to clients as they look to the future? You know, and maybe bring those two together for us. Well, probably that, as I, as I mentioned earlier, that the investment opportunity is still there. And, you know, if, as we hope and expect, that there is a, a green recovery globally and significant more investment and attention on the climate change agenda as a sort of equally important looming crisis of our times, then there are many, many benefits that, as I mentioned previously, have been clearly published through academic and governmental research uh, for investments on this agenda. So my anticipation and my hope, and certainly the evidence of recent weeks and months, is that we'll continue to work with our clients to understand that evolving opportunity. You know, this is obviously a, a subject you could talk around quite considerably, but but there's been some quite interesting developments, um, as, as Hugh mentioned, in terms of fossil fuel investment, decarbonisation of the grid, reinforcement of the grid, and lo- lots of things that are sort of happening as a consequence of the current crisis at a sort of infrastructure scale that are going to drive new opportunity and new initiative at the individual building scale. So I'm expecting the the business opportunity to evolve and get stronger and more enhanced and the legislative and regulatory landscape to become more focused. So 
those things coming together, I'm, I'm anticipating greater opportunity for investment and greater awareness of that opportunity. The other thing I'd add to that, Chris, is, you know, the opportunities are all there um, and to a certain extent waiting for the pioneers. As we do our science-based targets or as we do our, we do zero carbon pathways, for example, for municipalities, what becomes increasingly clear is there's kind of routes to various goals, end goals in terms of trying to achieve net zero carbon. But really, there is no inaction route. And what inaction means is it's going to cost you more money, it's going to take it, it's going to be harder, uh, you can have bigger change to deal with in shorter time. And also you run the risk of being caught out by the people who are the pioneers who get there first. Um, you know, the classic type of thing would be something like the Ocados of this world in the in the UK. The Ocado is a big online shopping, grocery shopping retailer. And they, they started going with a sort of clear vision of that's what they're going to do. What ended up becoming the greatest value part of their business was the know-how of how to do online shopping and, and robotic warehouses and things of that nature, not the online shopping model they built. And really, you know, there's a lot of benefits out there for pioneers and no one is going to get away with not looking at a pathway. Um, ultimately, that means they have to make more expensive or harder changes, or ultimately, if they really leave it out, that they risk not having a business at all or having a business, the business environment, you know, they're in the rug pulled out from underneath them because everything indicates that you know we need substantive change now and there are people doing it and those people are likely to gain the fruits of that endeavor just to add to that i think what we've spoken a lot about or certainly i've spoken a lot in in this session about benefits to the bottom line what's often missed from this discussion and not connected together is the benefits to the top line and increasingly businesses that are taking action on climate change and delivering more sustainable outcomes are starting to embed that understanding of you know this is about creating more productive and resilient businesses for the future for you know legislation and uh, consumer attitudes that are starting to become increasingly stronger in this space and more embedded so i think you know for those investments to be made that that business case also needs to you know be connected to the operational and the engineering level as well as at the sort of csr and marketing level it's through connecting those different business operations together so there's more coherence that you can you know be more ambitious with the scale of change you're trying to deliver and we know from some of our colleagues who've worked in major retail and enacted a major change for that business in terms of their approach to energy efficiency, their experiences of actually doing this are that if they hadn't made that step, and that was about 10 years ago, the retailer involved would not have been able to maintain its profit margins in the current climate. Literally, the savings they made are the, the things that have helped that business maintain that profitability um, under all these changing circumstances. And competitors who've not had the similar program found it harder to achieve the same sort of economic results. Well, I think on those motivating comments, both scary and inspiring and informative, you know, let's wrap it up there. But Hugh and Ben, thank you so much for the time and insight on this built environment, where it is, where it's going. Really appreciate your time and perspective. So thank you both very much. Pleasure. No problems. Thank you, Chris. 
Thank you all for listening. We'll include the links to the Key Anthesis web pages and external resources in the description. And also please reach out with any thoughts, comments, or questions to ben.lynch, that's L-Y-N-C-H, or hugh.blackwell, H-U-W, or chris.peterson, all at anthesisgroup.com. Thanks again, stay safe, and keep well.